Welcome back to the NovPod, a beginner's guide to anaesthetics, hosted by Anesthesia on Air, brought to you in association with the Royal College of Anaesthetists. I'm your co-host, Owen Dora. I am a Thames Valley anaesthetics trainee, and with me as always is my other co-host. Duncan Kemp, and I am an anaesthetic registrar in North Central. This is episode two, first day as a novice. Duncan, what do we have for our listeners today? Today we're going to talk about our own experiences and our first days as novices and we're then going to run you through what your typical day as a novice will look like along with a few hints and tips about how to get going. Let's get gassing. Let's get gassing. (laughs) First day of being a novice. Welcome. It's your first day. Congrats. Today's episode, Owen, we're talking a little bit about first day as a novice and we're trying to make it an informative and engaging thing rather than just reading off a list of at 9.05 we get our first fat white of the day. Interestingly we've talked to some of our novice colleagues and actually had a few questions to talk through about the first day which has helped us structure this podcast. A really important question which we hadn't thought about before we talked to them. What is my role as a novice anaesthetist on my first day? This is one of the things that people who are in their novice period find difficult. You have likely, especially if you've come from ACCS training and you've been a senior house officer, having a level of responsibility, having a position and a usefulness to the firm, to somewhere where you're supernumerary and you're not exactly sure what the next task to do, so you can't really help out. And this is what we really like to get across. In your first day, you should be observing, picking up information and just learning how the process of the patient arriving in the hospital and how they go from getting changed to being in the anaesthetic room, you putting them off to sleep, to then having their operation going through recovery, and how you, as the anaesthetist, can help them on that journey, make it smooth. You are in the supernumerary shadowing role, and you very quickly upgrade your software, hardware, and personnel skills in order to build up to being this fully functioning anaesthetist. Just want to say you will have this feeling of going from a position of responsibility to first day at school. Everyone goes there, embrace it, and then start your learning thick and fast in order to then go into that role of you're not just shadowing, you're now an apprentice and you're building your skill set. But we weren't always the co-hosts of this podcast, Duncan. We were once upon a time a novice. And by that, I mean actually just a couple of years ago. We'll say a couple. In recent time. So, Duncan, can you tell me a little bit about your first day? I remember quite vividly my first day. I had some experience in anaesthesia before, being lucky enough to do an F1 placement in it, but this is the first time I had ever experienced dental anaesthesia. We had a 16-patient dental list, and I was with a consultant who was also starting on their first day. Needless to say, it was very busy. It was sensory overload, and for the life of me, I remember what happened in the day, but I can't really remember what I got taught and what sunk in. I think a lot of stuff was absorbed. The mental processing on the day, it was just kind of go, 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 survival mode. Very interesting, if not slightly overwhelming day. That sounds busy, even when we're looking at that with our red hats on. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't fancy that day again. What about you, Owen? What about your first day? I remember feeling a little bit lost in that transition from being useful to being supernumerary. I remember the trick and relief that I felt when I finally, after 10 minutes, managed to find my associate specialist on the ward and then just really did shadow them. It was my first proper day of anaesthetics because I'd had a taster day, so I wasn't really sure how the structure worked and I ended up 
just managing to get in the way a lot and observing and being sort of passive of my learning. So I'm hoping as you guys listen to this podcast, you feel a little bit more empowered to get more out of your first days and definitely I did and maybe even than Duncan did. Important question I remember thinking about before I started my first day is where do I need to be and what do I need to do my first day of anaesthetics? On induction day, brand new novices coming in and they grab you, you look like a friendly fella and say, right, Owen, where do I need to go tomorrow? And what do I need to bring? What do I need to have ready for my first day to be not a train wreck? Yeah, it depends on how long I've been since I've lost eaten as to how friendly I look. What you need to do is just know where you're going. There'll be different lists that are assigned for different theatres. The first thing is finding yourself a pair of scrubs and finding yourself some theatre shoes. I didn't even realise that you weren't meant to wear any shoes that were used on outside in theatre until I went running through some mud one day and then got told off for bringing that into theatre. Rightly so, may I add. Once you can get yourself into your proper attire, you are probably Snapchat or Instagram ready for anaesthesia. But you also need to know where your patients are located and what the operating list is and how to access it. Then who you're working with. So you'll be working with more senior anaesthetists, how you contact them. You quickly learn in anaesthetics that communication doesn't really have a hierarchy. Anyone can ask anyone else a question. People want you to contact them and ask questions, particularly on your first few days, and then they can show you the ropes. Very important to be able to do that. And something I found challenging as a novice in my first few days in theatres was coming to terms with what theatres actually is as a construct and how it functions outside the remit of just putting patients to sleep, doing the operation and sending them away. Is there a way you could talk through with our novice listeners a very simplified manner of how theatres works? Theatres will either be emergency or elective cases. They'll be booked onto a list by a surgeon and emergencies can be split from different categories that will go onto an on-call episode. Important bit about theatres is they can either be day case patients where they're expected to go home or inpatient where they're going to stay over. You also need to think about who's in the theatre team. So usually it's a surgeon, an assistant, two scrub team and an HCA or a runner. And then you've got the anaesthetics team, which is usually an ODP and an anaesthetist. Although with you, there'll be two anaesthetists because you'll be a novice. So you won't be able to be left with the patient by themselves. In terms of the way they work and they run is that the surgeons and anaesthetists go and see the patients whilst the theatre teams are preparing their equipment. Everyone briefs where they talk about the patients and who's going to go in what order. We then send for the patients and then the operating starts. The morning list will either finish at a certain time giving time for an afternoon list to brief and start or it'll be an all-day list and it will carry on. And the operation's happy in, until the surgeon either runs out of steam or until 5.30. So why are they actually called operating theatres? You might notice from your American TVs that they're called ORs in America, operating rooms. So why are they called OTs or operating theatres here? That is a hangover from how they used to teach medicine in that they would have an amphitheatre in which the surgery would happen. And this is in the 19th century. So they'll have about like even up to 100 people watching a surgery. It actually leads to an interesting fact. Do you want to have a guess at what the highest mortality from one surgery is? 
Can't be more than 100%, surely. Actually, it is. It's 300%, which I hope is a surgical (laughs) record that that never gets broken. This was by Robert Liston in the 19th century. Fortunately, he was performing a leg amputation one day where the scene was so gruesome, it caused one of the observers in the amphitheatre to have a heart attack and pass away. The patient unfortunately passed away, but he also managed to cut off the finger of his operating assistant who caught gangrene and also passed away. That That's is pretty good going. That is pretty good going. So that's 300% mortality rate from one surgery. So hopefully that never happens again, but that's why they're called operating theatres. And thankfully, I have to say, we now don't have members of the public or medical students observing in the same amphitheatre. It would certainly make putting the central line in a bit harder. Yeah, very sweaty. We've talked about the theatre team and the anaesthetic team and how theatres work, but how does an anaesthetist go about their day? They've come in at 7.15 after cycling in, wearing their triathlon t-shirt. Brandishing their Ironman tattoo, and coming in and getting a flat white. An anaesthetist's journey through the day. Arriving in the hospital, getting changed, picking up your theatre list of patients, be that electronic or paper-based. Then finding where your patients are, going to see the patients in the pre-op visit, which includes pre-assessing the patient, consenting the patient, checking the history and the notes to make sure there's nothing, no reason they cannot be done that day. You then go to your theatre to liaise with your ODP. Sometimes you will have a kind of pre-huddle with them in order to get equipment and certain medications ready that you will need for the procedures you're doing. Then at around 8.15, 8 o'clock, depending on the hospital you're in, there will be a team huddle. That's the anaesthetists, surgeons, surgical team, anaesthetic team. And that goes through, like we've mentioned before, the order of the list, the patients to be done. If there's any reasons certain patients may need switched around, any equipment the surgeon will need, any equipment the anaesthetist will need. And then sometimes there'll be a debate about anaesthetic and surgical time to make sure the list flows well. Then you prepare your theatre for the patient to arrive. And that includes checking equipment with the ODP, including the anaesthetic machine and airway equipment you'll use, making sure you've got the adequate monitoring you'll need, drugs drawn up that's specific to the anaesthetic case and emergency drugs, and then bringing the patient and getting them ready for the anaesthetic. Check them in, insert cannula if they don't have one already, pre-oxygenate, perform your induction, perform your airway management. You will then transfer into the operating theatre, establish your maintenance of your anaesthetic where the surgery will then be performed. Then in theatre, you will have emergence from your anaesthesia, and extubation if you have intubated a patient, or airway management as the exit plan. Then once the patient's ready to go to recovery, take them to recovery, where you will then re-establish monitoring, hand over to the recovery nurses, then go back to your theatre to draw up drugs, get equipment and monitoring ready for the next case, and rinse and repeat until the day is done. Duncan, talking about efficiency, is there a way that we can send for the patients if that's the most efficient thing? Why at 7.30 can we not just say, Porters, can you please go and pick up all the patients for the day and deliver them all to anaesthetic room one at the same time? To talk about that from the patient's perspective of the patient journey through the hospital, to give a little bit of context as to why we cannot just send for patients, if only we could, and there was just a slide down to theatres and then an escalator back up. The patent application I've submitted is still pending, so we will see how far that gets. I will not be investing into that company. <sighs> well, yeah, you'll miss out, you'll miss out. Let's go through from what happens to the patient themselves, why there is this nebulous time where you're waiting for the patient to come. The patient will be told to come into a certain part of the hospital at a certain time, depending on what surgery they are having. Sometimes there will also be an inpatient, whether they are having emergency surgery, elective or semi-urgent surgery will depend on where they end up going. 
once the patient is there in the hospital, they will need to get changed. They will need to get checked in by a nurse. They will need to have identification wristbands, bracelets, whatever your hospital uses in order to make sure they are correctly identifiable. Then they will need to have special investigations done potentially. So uh, pregnancy tests, urinalysis, swabs, things like that. They'll need to be seen by an anaesthetist and consented. They'll need to be seen by a surgeon and consented and a consent form filled out. They will then need to wait there for you to have your huddle, decide the order of the list and be called down, whether they are walked down from the ward or whether they are brought down by a porter on a wheelchair or a bed or a trolley. Once they come down to you, checked in again, anaesthetic performed, surgery performed, brought into recovery where they are recovered. Once they are safe to go from recovery to the ward, they will go back up to the ward where they will then either be discharged or stay in as an inpatient or potentially go to a high dependency ward, depending on the patient themselves and the severity of the surgery they are having. I think that's a rough overview of the patient journey. Each of those points where they are transitioning from one environment to another is a potential roadblock in the running of that theatre time. It's important to realise that there can be delays for many reasons, to be aware of what are simple things that can mean that there are lots of delays. And so you can whack-a-mole the problem before it's even happened. How do we prepare as anaesthetists the patient for theatre? What's involved in seeing them, speaking to them and consenting them? How do we prepare a patient for theatre? Well, that was the easiest reply you could have given. I know, um, I'm picking the easy way out. And unfortunately, novices, that is pretty much how every question that you ask will get reflected back to you. <laughs> we pick up that list and we will go and see the patients. That is so that we can build trust and rapport with them. We are thinking about them in terms of what are the risks from the anaesthetic to this patient? What is the risk in terms of these patients' comorbidities to themselves? And what is the surgical risks that are imposed? And what you're trying to do is put all those risks together and present it to the patient so that you can, A, see whether or not there is something that can be optimised and whether or not that you think actually surgery in general is acceptable for this patient. B, whether there's anything that you want to do on that day to optimise them, not just in general. And C, make sure that they understand what these risks mean to them in their context. So it's not only just checking and making sure that what you've looked at online or through their notes is true, it's making sure you put that all together and come up for, with a recipe and a plan that puts them off to sleep in the safest way. Anything to add on that, Duncan? No, I don't think so. I think it's preparing the patient clinically by pre-assessing them and consenting them. We're preparing the patient mentally by talking through risk and also introducing ourselves and establishing a rapport. Um, we've seen our patient on the wards. What can we do to optimise our environment? Well, that's just about making sure that everything is there when we need it. That involves me at the moment, whilst I'm a reg, and I know my aesthetic plan. If you're a novice, you can check with your consultant to make sure that there's nothing else that they are at. But I then go and speak to my ODP, who's the Operational Departmental Practitioner, they are your right-hand person in doing anaesthetics and they will help sort out additional equipment, monitoring if you're intubating the patient or still getting the intubation kit ready. I then 
make sure that I have anesthetic machines that are on and working. You then make sure that you can draw up drugs for induction, maintenance and your emergency drugs. And then we do the WHO team brief where everyone goes around and it is your opportunity for you to listen to what the surgeon is planning on doing and then you get to mention what you are doing for your anaesthetic plan and whether or not you have any major concerns for them. Lastly, but probably most importantly, is learning people's names. I know that there's a lot of people to learn the names of but it is something in your first few weeks if the more people's names you can learn the more you're going to start feeling like part of the team. You're optimising your work environment from a personnel perspective aren't you yeah Um, and it makes things run more efficiently gives a happier better team dynamic it means people come away from the end of the day less frustrated than if you've just been a robotic cog in in the wheel of theatres exactly a point to add on there's an optimization of your learning environment I announced to the team that I'm a novice that they don't expect tasks that a novice wouldn't be able to do I ask if my plan is correct from the consultant and then get feedback on that and then I also say to the consultant what I'd like to learn in that day what I'd like to do an assessment on for example maybe I actually just want to focus on doing cannulas and practical skills and getting feedback on that but it allows you to make sure the consultant has specific feedback for you at the end of the day that's just work and learning because you're not just there for the work you're there so you can use so you can learn as much as possible so when the patient arrives then we can just plug them into the anesthetic machine and go right so an anesthetized patient can never be left alone they need to be looked after by someone who has got a initial assessment of competency important bit about that is that won't be you for the first three months you will be able to dip in and out and you're having breaks but your consultant colleague won't be able to leave it's a bit like a formula one pit crew when the patient comes in there are safety checks that they need to do so optimize the reduction of risk you'll be putting cannulas in the hands but because we will have cold patients who are starved you may be missing a few of those cannulas then we need to attach monitoring. Then we can do the things such as pre-oxygenation, airway skills after the induction drugs have been given. That's the induction part done. Is there anything you'd like to add on that bit from what I've said, Duncan? Yeah, I think actually paying attention to that bit, that starting point with the ODP about the checklist. Doing a checklist with the ODP, our ODPs appreciate it when you do it with them. It's another thing in human factors, Swiss cheese model that stops mistakes happening. The other thing is learning to apply monitoring yourself. They're asleep and ventilated, Duncan. Does that mean it's time for a coffee? Again, unfortunately not. Oh, boo. Um, it's just Captain Kiljoy. Well, at times you will be asked, actually, as the patient's been transferred from the trolley where you've anesthetised them onto the operating table, do you want to go for a coffee? I highly recommend, as a novice, you hang around and watch everything transition from the patient going from anaesthetic room into theatre and being established in theatre. It's easy to miss that transition. A lot of things can happen. It's important to be aware of those things that can happen, like loss of monitoring, cannulas being displaced, the ventilator not being switched back on, things like that that you will learn very quickly to preempt and check for. Doing that AT check, quite a lot of subtleties in that, and the senior anaesthetist and ODPs will do a lot of that automatically, so it's very easy to miss. So it's important to appreciate that, almost as important as being around for the induction, in order to make sure that nothing gets missed, because these can cause problems down the line. The other thing is 
you will probably be sent for more coffees than you've ever had. It's important for you to take your coffee breaks because there will be information overload. You need to be able to process the information you've had and prepare yourself for more learning. One of the things I didn't quite get when I first started was how emergence works, so how you essentially wake a patient up from anaesthetic. I thought it was a bit more simple than it was and that you just turned off the anaesthetic machine and walked away. So, Duncan, how does emergence or extubation work and what can the novice learn from it? Emergence is one of those key points where it's easy as a novice to miss out on learning points with them because sometimes, particularly if you're on a high turnover list, you might be sent for a break or for lunch just as the surgeons are closing and they're starting to wake the patient up. Really important to witness, experience and get involved with emergence because one day you will end up having to do this stuff out of hours on your own and it's really good to start picking up good practice from the get-go. There is nothing more satisfying in my mind than a nice, smooth, clean emergence with a patient who wakes up lovely and smooth and you drop them in recovery with no problems. And by that, it doesn't just mean not bumping the patient and the, the trolley on the way around the corners oh, to dude. recovery. He means no coughing, the patient waking up in pain, not spluttering. It makes for a much um, more settled anaesthetic as well. Yeah, I definitely say my trolley driving is still in the learner period, even years on. A recovery area won't take an intubated patient, so you should make sure that the tube is out. One of the resources I think I can point you to to have a look at is the DAS extubation guidelines, and that goes through preparing for whether or not this patient should be emerged in terms of the low and high-risk patients, and then the actual steps you do in terms of airway preparation and ventilation, uh, what sort of steps to take. And I think the more you start looking at those resources, the more they start becoming second nature. may seem a bit complex because it's very algorithmically driven, but it's a good thing you can discuss with a senior anaesthetist or consultant who's looking after you in order to clarify points. Once we have either extubated the patient, taken the endotracheal tube out, or the patient is self-ventilating on a supraglottic airway, they should be able to go to recovery. Recovery is an area which has recovery nurses who are very specialised in dealing with patients in post-surgery and post-anaesthetic. And this place is basically in order for the patient to go from a post-anaesthetic and surgical state to a wardable state. By wardable state, I mean their observations are stable, pain is controlled, and they are not suffering from complications of their surgery or anaesthetic, such as nausea and vomiting. I think that's the main pillars of what the recovery is there to try and establish before a patient is sent to a ward. How can you take the most learning from that day after you've dropped your patients in recovery? That will come down to feedback. It is not just the person you're asking for feedback's responsibility. It's also your responsibility to think, what am I asking them for? Pointed feedback off the anaesthetic consultant or senior that you're working with, your ODP, off the recovery staff and the patient. The patient may be less, did I give you the right dose of muscle relaxant, more are you happy and not vomiting. But for the anaesthetic consultant and ODP, when you're first starting off, you are doing a lot of practical skills. So we've got quite a useful feedback tool mechanism to teach you, and that's tubes. So that is T for technique, U for understanding, B for backup, E for extra equipment, 
and S for summary of key points. So T is for technique. Was I using my, my ventilation technique correct? U is understanding. When I was looking and intubating, did I communicate well? Should B, backup. If that didn't work, is there anything else you would have suggested or what would our next step be? Extra equipment, I might have used a bougie. And then S is summary of your key takeaway points from that practical skill. And the person that I'd really like to stress to you to ask for feedback from would be the ODP. They will be able to give you some real golden nuggets of how you can improve personally. If I've got time, I could look at the list for the next day. For example, I might be on an ENT list where I'm doing an operation where I haven't heard of the operation before. So I might look for a British Journal of Anesthesia article for it that could go through it for me. I may have a look at the patients so I can kind of familiarise myself with their comorbidities and conditions. And then that can help me prepare for my learning for the next day in terms of both assessments and then also the practicalities of where I'm going. Anesthetics is a tiring time when you start out as a novice. How can listeners of the NovPods optimise themselves outside of work. This all filters down to well-being and longevity. You're going to be doing anaesthetics for a minimum of six months to also working your career for the rest of your lives. It's important to be able to decompress at the end of the day, compartmentalise your time and also consolidate your learning. Decompress, compartmentalise, consolidate. I'm coining that now. On that, some of the most important people you can speak to are your peers. If you're working one-on-one with a consultant, you won't be able to compare with how they're doing. You might feel bad about missing a candle, and it turns out that Duncan's missed three. Three three on a good day. Three on a good day. I think of well-being as optimising your mental and physical health, making sure that you are looking after your basic human needs, getting enough sleep, optimising your nutrition, doing something for you as well as contacting your social support network you're doing something that makes you relax that is different for different people i enjoy my recreational time rowing and knitting although some people say my knitting looks like i'm rowing and my rowing looks like i'm knitting which uh, i don't think is a compliment and duncan i know that you to relax look at videos of cats uh, i'm going to deny that i'm forced to watch cat videos by my other half but that's a that's a story for another time okay I similarly enjoy my time off. I think I throw myself into things like doing yoga and playing the drums as a kind of decompression thing. It's nice to be able to focus on something else, trying to get your brain onto a kind of more one-track thinking and focusing on something that's non-clinical or non-work related for a little bit in order to reset yourself. What a first day. So hopefully that gives you a bit more of an idea about what your first day might entail and how to hit the ground running. Duncan, we also like to provide some further reading and links and bio for people to have a look at further information. So what should our novice listener have a look at? Referenced and linked into the bio of this episode will be the Royal College of Anaesthetists Novice Guide, where there is an excellent first day as a novice entry, which reads very well. Another great resource, which we will link throughout the series to, is e-learning for healthcare. It has an e-learning and anaesthesia module in that there is an introduction to clinical anaesthesia and there's a general theatre conduct module. Quite a useful overview of how the flow of theatres works, so it's worth checking out to get a more visual oversight of what's going to happen when you go to theatres.